0: We are in the middle of a series called How to Live by Faith in Perplexing Times, and it's out of the book of Habakkuk, really an exposition of the book of Habakkuk. So turn to Habakkuk now if you're not already there, if you would. Uh, Last week we looked at one of uh, what we found is one of the most important verses in the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2.4, which says, "...the righteous shall live by his faith." This is one of the central themes of Scripture, the righteous live by faith. You see it in Abraham, we see it here in Habakkuk, and Paul picks up on that theme in the New Testament and expounds on it to help us understand that salvation is not by works, but is by faith alone. And today we're going to look at the contrast in the book of Habakkuk between the proud, greedy Chaldeans and those who live by faith. So, if you are in Habakkuk, look at chapter 2. I'm going to begin in in verse 4 and read through the end of uh, the chapter. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake will make you tremble then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth to cities and all who dwell in them woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory." The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as with the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies? for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! and to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. We covered verses 4 and 5 last week, and they really offer a contrast in summary form of the one who is not upright, whose soul is puffed up, who's proud, it is contrasted with the one who lives by his faith. Last week we said verse 5 is a summary of the practice of the Chaldeans. They are presumptuous, they're proud, they're greedy, they're as greedy as death, which swallows everyone up, it can never be satisfied. And that is the summary of the Chaldeans' behavior, their practice. But where we're going to get in today is the particulars of the practice of the Chaldeans. The descriptions of their wickedness, they're in a series in the form of a series of five woes. But one of the debates among commentators is whether these woes are meant to be directed at the Chaldeans or whether they're meant to be directed at Judah. Most commentators believe that they're directed towards the Chaldeans, and I would agree. But the reason that so many other commentators think that these could be directed at Judah is because Judah had begun to look a lot like a pagan nation. And they reflected many of these same sins. Just to, to give you an intro to this, turn to Jeremiah chapter 22. And I had in my notes but i had to cut them out for time's sake for each of these instances a reference in jeremiah and the prophets that condemned judah of the very same sins but this is just one example jeremiah 22 uh, beginning in verse 13 it says woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice who makes his neighbors serve serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with a spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your fathers eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy, and then it was well Is not this to know me, declares the Lord, but you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood and for practicing oppression and violence. So as we can see from this reference in Jeremiah, uh, building a house by unrighteous means, shedding blood, practicing oppression and violence, is a very similar description, a very similar woe, to the king of Judah, Jehoiakim, the children of Josiah, so many of these woes are actually against Judah. Many people think so many of the, thing, the woes in Habakkuk are against Judah because it ref, Judah reflects the depravity of the Chaldeans. So you can flip back to Habakkuk. So many people think these are against Judah, but I would maintain that these woes in Habakkuk are directed towards the Chaldeans. But as the descriptions of such sins were proclaimed by the faithful messenger, a secondary result would be that the Judeans, they would hear the words condemning the Chaldeans and they would see themselves in the description of the woes as well. The condemnation of the Chaldeans would be pronounced by Habakkuk and other faithful messengers, and the people would listen because it was primarily against someone else, but then they would find the piercing word of God coming back and landing in their own hearts. So these are directed at the Chaldeans, but they're meant to warn anyone, anyone who would act this way, warn them to turn back. Thus, this is a bit of self-examination this morning. That is to say, how much of a Chaldean are you? How much of a Chaldean am I? How much of a Canaanite are you? In other words, how much of the world is in you? As we hold up this picture of the Chaldeans, will we see ourselves painted therein? And so I've broken up this Chapter into six points, um, and I'm not going to list them all up front. I'll try to list them as we go through. But the first one is the provoking of the faithless. The provoking of the faithless. Again, I said this is a contrast in between the faithless and the faithful, and this is all about the faithless. The faithful live by faith; they walk by faith, and this is the practice of the faithless. But point number one, the provoking of the faithless. And that's the beginning part of verse 6. Shall not all of these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? So there's a series of five woes indicting and condemning the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. But first, there's this odd verse speaking about taunting and scoffing and riddles. And it says, all these take up their taunts. All these refers back to verse 5, referring to all the people, all the nations that the Chaldeans had gathered to themselves. And all these, they'll take up their taunt against them. Taunt is a word that's often translated as a proverb. It refers to sayings of different types and genres. It's often translated as wise sayings. It can refer to a song of jest, of mocking. But there's a a wide sweep of what this word can mean, and the interpretation of a a proverb doesn't encompass everything. But this word can be synonymous with an extended parable, an extended parable where there is an object lesson to be learned. One commentator says, of this term and i quote it is derived from a root which means to be like or to be similar and it has the the basic meaning seems to be a clever insightful comparison it's used to designate both very short individual proverbs and much longer poetic comparisons very often the comparison involved in such a text is quite disparaging The various expressions for someone becoming or being made into a proverb are uniformly negative. Such a person is belittled as a negative model to warn others away from similar behavior. Because of these negative disparaging overtones, one can sometimes translate this word, masal, as a taunt song. So all the nations that are gathered in by the Chaldeans, they will take up their disparaging sayings, their taunts against them, with these extended lessons. To warn them to turn back from their wicked ways, but also to warn others who would follow in their footsteps. Even though general revelation, the law written on the hearts of men, it's obvious that what the Chaldeans are doing will not end well for them. Even the unbelievers see that. So all the people, they take up their proverbs against them to turn others away and provoke such ones to think about their actions. But on top of taunt or proverbs, there is scoffing and riddles. Scoffing refers to figurative language, elusive expressions. It can also be translated as a proverb. And this word is actually only attested in one other place in the entire Bible, and that's Proverbs 1.6. And it just happens that all three of these words, taunting, scoffing, and riddles, are used in Proverbs 1.6. But there it's translated as, to understand a proverb, that's our word for taunt here, and a saying, that's the word for scoffing here, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise in their riddles. So Solomon wrote Proverbs to facilitate his son's learning wisdom, understanding the lessons of life so they don't have to learn the hard way. That's a bit of the same purpose here in Habakkuk. The reason these people were crying out their taunts and their Proverbs and their riddles was to warn people who would follow in the same footsteps. Riddles could refer to hard questions, the queen of Sheba, when she came to Solomon, she asked him riddles or she asked him hard questions of life that he answered with his great wisdom. But these three words together, they're used here to indicate that all those who had been taken captive and oppressed by the Chaldeans, they would provoke them to think about their actions by speaking these extended illustrations to them to provoke them to think about their actions and warn others from following in the same path. And the Chaldeans, they're so wicked, they're so depraved, that all the nations, even the unbelieving ones, would recognize their depravity and speak against it. God is telling Habakkuk that the wickedness of the Chaldeans is going to be so great, so depraved, that everyone else is going to see how wicked they are, to speak words against them. That such a wake of destruction, it will reap a whirlwind of destruction. The entire world, is going to be obvious to them, that such a culture of death is an end to itself. It will consume itself. And as believers, it is our job in particular to take point on provoking the world to think by various means of Proverbs and illustrations to get them to see the folly of their ways. To warn them, to turn them back. But we've spoken extensively on that the last couple of the last sermons on our job as believers to provoke the world the unbeliever to think about their actions so i don't want to rehash all that here this is just a slightly different application in how to do that by illustration and hard questions asking them hard questions to get them to think about the end of their destructive path but that brings us to the woes which are those extended illustrations meant to turn others back from following in the footsteps of the Chaldeans. And it's an extended description of what the faithless look like in contrast to the one who lives by faith. So the first of the five woes, or point number two, is the plundering of the faithless. So the provoking of the faithless is actually those who are captured by the faithless provoke them. They're the object of the provoking here. The faithless, they're the subject of the plundering, the plundering of the faithless. We see that in the rest of verse 6 through 8. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who awake will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. So the first of the five woes, the plundering of the faithless. Woe simply refers to a threatening cry of the prophets. When it's used as it is here, it's followed by the reprehensible conduct before Yahweh, of the men before Yahweh, and it motivates what motivates the threat that follows. It's primarily used as a word to introduce warnings or threats of God's physical chastisement. But it is always understood as a lament. Woe, it carries the idea of lament, the lament for a certain judgment that is certain to occur, but it is never a wish that an evildoer be punished. It's always, it always has the idea of grievous, threatening, a lament. It means that one is not to celebrate the judgment of the wicked, rather to lament the necessity of such a judgment. So those who are provoking the Chaldeans, they're lamenting the need for such a judgment to come. They are not celebrating it. We never see in Scripture rejoicing in the punishment and the death Of the wicked, only lamenting it and warning people of the coming punishment for such actions. But it's certain destruction for those who do not turn back. So, this first woe is against the faithless, plundering Chaldeans. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. And following all of these woes are participles. And what participles do is they indicate what people are characterized by. And so all of these woes followed by participles are indicating what characterizes such people. This is the same kind of pattern from Jesus' Sermon on the Mound where we have the Beatitudes. He lists a bunch of uh, words, say, blessed, followed by participles. Blessed is the one who is poor in spirit, for his is the kingdom of God. So those who find themselves following after the character of the Beatitudes can be confident they are children of God. These woes are the negative counterpart to the Beatitudes. It begins with a woe instead of a blessing, with a participle characterizing the person. The first one here is, Woe to the person who heaps up what is not his own. The eagerness of the Chaldeans to take men captive, to plunder men is often recorded uh, in the Babylonian chronicles. I just want to read a portion of that chronicle of the Babylonians for you briefly, just to give you a picture. This is characteristic of them. It says, and I quote, and this is just straight out of their list of things that they did. They had a list and they just wrote down all the, their their conquerors and their things that they did. And they say, All the kings of the land came before him and received their heavy tribute. He marched to the city of Ascalon and captured it in the month of Kislev. He captured its kind and plundered it and carried off spoil from it. In the sixth year of the month of Kislev, the king of Akkad mustered his army and marched to land. And from the Hadi land, he sent out his companies, and scouring the desert, they took much plunder from the Arabs, their possessions, animals, and gods. In the month of Adar, the king returned to his own land." And their record is just full of this, listing kings who went out, and they plundered this land, and plundered that land, and came back, and took all the spoil in. The records reveal that this is just a pattern of them scouring the earth and taking what didn't belong to them, stealing everything from the nations around them. This is not a characteristic of a faithful person, but an unfaithful. So just in case any of you young people, you're considering this for a career option, plundering people for their stuff is not a righteous occupation. That little phrase, for how long, is just indicate that this plundering, it's going to go on for some time before the judgment comes. But such people, they load themselves with pledges. Pledges is a word that refers to heavy debts. So this is a picture of someone who's bloated with debt. And it all seems like it's going really, really well. Plundering people for their stuff Taking whatever you want, until suddenly, verse 7, will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those awake will make you tremble, and then you will be spoiled for them. And spoil here is a word, and when it's used, always used in Scripture with a reference to judgment. So here's some poetic justice for the Chaldeans. While they're making everyone their slaves, they're plundering everyone, taking All that they own, all their fortunes will soon be reversed. And the Chaldeans will be the spoil. The conqueror will be conquered. And they will reap what they have sown. And they will be spoiled for the nations because, verse 8, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Because... Or for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Because of the bloodshed, the blood of all those that they slaughtered cries out from the ground for justice, just as Abel's blood did, such a one will reap what he sows, judgment will come back upon his own head, But as we read these descriptions, obviously none of us are riding around, plundering, pillaging people around us. How does this apply to us? Well, there's a principle here that we can think about and then apply to ourselves. It's woe to him who heaps up what is not his own and loads himself with large amount of debt so much that he can never pay it back. So the principle is don't heap up a bunch of debt you can't pay. Because the debtor is going to come for you. The picture of the Chaldean is someone who is bloated in debt. Is that you? Do you like to buy a bunch of stuff you don't really have money for? Taking it by, you know, swiping that card that accumulates all the charges and yes the store considers that thing yours now but do you really have the money for it do you heap up a bunch of stuff that's not really yours the average household balance on credit cards for someone who doesn't pay off their balance every month the average balance is $15,000 it's a crushing amount of debt with exorbitant interest rates You'd be paying over $200 a month just in interest, and when you take on this kind of debt, you become the spoil. You become the one that is then forking over all that you have to try and pay for it. You think you're getting everything for free when in reality you're the spoil for all those credit card companies. Particularly as A young person, you can feel like you're getting a bunch of stuff that you want without really having to pay for it. Really, no cost to you at all, but one day they will come for you. That's what this warns us of. The principle you take on a whole bunch of debt, you're going to have to pay it back. Woe to him who takes what is not his own, to him who loads himself up with debt. You think you're winning, but you will become the spoil. So the principle is, don't load yourself up with debt. In our modern context, don't take things you can't afford to pay for. Instead, have self-control. Work hard and be a good steward. The Chaldeans, they thought it was much easier, more fun. It brought them greater glory to just ransack people and take all that they wanted. Following after all their own selfish desires. Don't be like that. Woe to those who do that. Proverbs 22, 26, 27 says, Be not one of those who give pledges, who put up security for debts, same idea here. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? Same principle here. Woe to him who loads himself with debt, because you're even going to lose your bed, or the American uh, vernacular saying, you'll even lose the shirt off your back. Don't take stuff in pledge if you have nothing with which to pay. Rather, we ought to be good stewards with what God has given us, living within our means. We say no to the things that we want, that we don't have money to buy, or maybe we even do have money to buy, but it's not being a good steward with what we have. We say no to the things we want, so we can be a good steward of the things God has given us. We have to examine our own lives, our own stewardship, and see if we are heaping up what doesn't belong to us. We have to see if we are characterized by loading ourselves up with debt. We want to assess this now because we want to take Solomon's advice to his sons in Proverbs 6, 1-5, that when we have accumulated unsecured debt, we need to give our eyes no sleep, we need to work our tails off, give our eyes no slumber in order to get out of that debt, Because Solomon says those lenders are hunters and they're coming for you. So we want to get out of debt and especially unsecured debt so we can steward what the Lord has given us well. Don't be like the unfaithful, plundering Chaldeans. Be a faithful steward. So the first woe is against those who heap up what is not their own, Their debtors are coming for their heads, and in the end, they will be plundered. But that brings us to the second woe, the plotting of the faithless, the plotting of the faithless. Verse 9 says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. So again, him who gets is a participle indicating someone who's characterized by such a thing but this is the hebrew term for weaving something together and after you have woven it together you cut it off of the threads that you made it from and the word for gain right below that it's actually the same three-letter word it's just the noun form instead of the verb form and it refers to the thing that's been cut off But when it's used in negative context like this, it came to be referred to someone's cut of the loot. So it has that same idea of cutting it off, but when it's an evil idea, a wicked negative idea, it's referred to as someone's cut of the loot. But here, it seems to be that the end goal is in mind. That is to say, why, in this case, does such a person do this, go out to heap up evil gain for his house. Why is he doing this? Well, it's for the purpose of living in safety. Look at the end of verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house in order to, or for the purpose of, setting his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. I mean, that's a good reason to do something, right? To set your house high like a nest safe from harm, isn't that a good desire and goal? Nebuchadnezzar, he was prolific in this. He had one of the most secure homes in the world. He built Babylon to have two outer walls, with the outermost wall having a moat outside of that. But Nebuchadnezzar himself describes the city that he built. And I want to read that. For you here. This is out of the Chronicles of Nebuchadnezzar, how he describes his own city. He says, and I quote, I brought the completion of Imger Bel, the great wall of Babylon, the city of the great lord Marduk. At the threshold of the city gates, I stationed strong wild bulls of bronze and serpents standing erect. I dug its moat and reached the bottom of the water. I built its bank with butumen and burned brick. So think of like cement. This is what he's building with. I had the bulwark at the bank of the mighty wall built with butumen and burned brick like a mountain so that it could not be moved in order to strengthen the watchtower of Esagila that the enemy and the destroyer might not approach Babylon. I threw around the city on the outer wall of Babylon, a strong wall towards the east, I dug its moat and raised its bank with butumen and burned brick, mountain high. By the side of Babylon, I constructed a dike of great masses of earth and surrounded it with a mighty stream of many waters like the fullness of the sea. And then I threw a swamp around this to the life of the people of Babylon. So he amassed all of this, as he mentions in there, to protect the people. This only confirms what Habakkuk says here, that this was all done to keep the people of Babylon safe, to keep King Nebuchadnezzar and his family safe. On top of all this, Nebuchadnezzar, he had a lavish palace that was enclosed by a wall that was over 136 feet thick. That's thicker than our building is this direction. That's how thick the wall was for his personal home. He was trying to be safe, keep his family safe. That's a a good thing to want a secure home, right? Physically secure, financially secure. Those are good desires. But the principle here is the ends, a good end here of wanting a secure home, the ends do not justify the means. These are good desires, but it's not right to go about getting that security by pillaging all the towns around them, stealing from others. And we must consider for ourselves, if we have the same tendency in us, yeah, we're not going to be, you know, going to eat and pillaging people to make our house more secure, but it's the principle. Do we justify what we do because we think it's for a good end? We must consider if we have the same tendency in us to go after good ends like a secure home, but doing so by unrighteous means. And there's a bit of irony in verse 9 because the word for evil and then the word for harm is the same word. The word for evil gain at the first line of verse 9 and then the word for harm at the end of verse 9, It's the same word. So such a one is condemned... Because he performs evil in order to protect himself from evil. The one who lives as if the ends justify the means, he devises and plots shame for his house. You have devised is a word that refers to forethought, to counsel, even advice. It refers to something that's planned and decided So when somebody plans to have a secure home, they're making decisions and planning for that. When one seeks a good end, by unrighteous means, it is still wickedness. And such one has plotted to bring shame upon his house. Such a one is planning. You might be thinking you're planning for the security of your home, but you're actually planning shame upon your home. You're deciding to chase after what will bring shame upon your house. Shame is the subjective feeling of disapproval, which will curb people's actions so as to not feel poorly from those around them. In our country, shame is the great enemy, especially the great enemy of the authentic self. You should never feel shame about yourself, even if you're a very bad person. No matter what you do, you should be proud about it. We saw this as last month was Pride Month. And the oppressive society should not make you feel bad about who you are. The world, our world says shame is the great enemy. But biblically, shame within the context of a society is meant to keep people from sin. It's a good thing that turns people back from doing sinful, foolish things. And if you use wicked means to attain a good end, you plot against your own house to bring shame upon it. As I said, you may think you're building your house, but you're actually plotting its destruction. And when it falls, you bring shame to your entire family, your entire household. So much so that even the inanimate Objects, the stone will cry out, the beam will respond, even inanimate objects cry out against the injustice. The one who fears the Lord will never use the ends to justify the means, because the one who fears the Lord is considering the true end of all things, the judgment of God. When you stand before God, He's going to judge you based on your faithfulness to Him and reward you according to your faithfulness and walking in obedience to what you know. Using the ends to justify the means is how the Chaldeans lived. It's how unbelievers reasoned. It's how our world thinks. It is not how the faithful think. So if this Characterizes you, you make excuse for sin because it's for a good end. You resemble the Chaldeans more than you resemble Christ. We need to repent when we do this. We need to walk in the light, walk in righteousness, trusting the Lord to keep us safe and secure, not going around by unrighteous means to bring about our security. But that brings us to the third woe or the fourth point. The pillaging of the faithless. The pillaging of the faithless. Look at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? The Chaldeans, they built their homes on the blood of others, they established them with behavior that is contrary to God's character. Iniquity here, it's often used in opposition to the righteous or righteousness. And so they build their towns and their cities on unrighteousness. Towns and cities, they're supposed to be long-lasting, where people can pass on their inheritance to their children. But the one who builds his town on bloodshed and iniquity, Woe to him, look at verse 13, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Labor, it has the basic meaning of to work until one is completely exhausted. It refers to toil and work, the weariness that results from the labor. What one is laboring and exhausting himself for in this text In the ESV, at least, it says fire. It's actually the word for ash. Jeremiah 51-58 refers to something that's already been burned with this word, a house that's already been burned down. It's ash. It's parallel with the word for nothing in the next line. That is to say, when the Lord of hosts judges them, because they founded their towns in iniquity and built their cities on bloodshed, The Lord of hosts is going to burn their cities in judgment. All that they worked for is going to be ash. The knowledge of the Lord is going to come to them in the form of judgment for their sins. All that they are working so hard for, wearying themselves for, is nothing more than an ash heap. So boiling this down to a principle we can apply into our own life, the Chaldeans, the Unfaithful, they are characterized by building their lives on that which is temporarily beneficial and pleasing to them, without regard for the long term consequences. They went on killing men to build their towns, founding them on iniquity, when that would result in their destruction. This is a bit like the man who builds his house on the sand. He does so because it's easy and convenient. But when the judgment of God comes, it is totally lost, it is totally washed away. The Chaldeans were characterized by thinking short-term, building their cities in the most convenient way possible, not taking into account that God was going to send fire and judgment, making all their life's work, nothing more than ash. The Chaldeans spent their lives and energy exhausting themselves on that which would be lost. They had no regard for that which truly lasts. And as Christians, we need to build our lives thinking long-term. Our cities, our towns, our homes, too, are going to one day become ash. Is that what you are living for? Or are you living and thinking about the eternal city, Your eternal reward that will last forever. The Chaldeans were thinking short-term. This life. The faithful, the one who walks by faith, thinks long-term. Again, in the end, when we stand before God, is He going to be pleased with us? Are we going to go into the fire and have any of our work remain? Are we wearying ourselves for things on this earth that will not last? Consider what you are wearying yourselves for: Labor for the right things, not that which will one day simply turn to ash. But that brings us to the fourth woe, point number five: the perverting of the faithless. Look at verse 15. It says, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Obviously, drunkenness is a sin. I don't think I need to point that out to any of you. And it's also wrong to make other people drink and get drunk, thus causing them to sin. Jesus makes it clear that anyone who makes another stumble. It's better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and thrown into the ocean so as to not incur greater judgment upon himself. It's better that he be killed and thrown into the ocean. Even more miserable than the death of being crushed as you're thrown into the water with a millstone hung around your neck, you're killed quickly as the water crushes you blows out your eardrums and crushes you. Even more miserable is the judgment that you would incur were you to continue to live and lead others in sin. So obviously, making other people drunk in order to, for the sake of getting their clothes off, is wicked. It's a mark of the faithless to live this way. But the principle there is, The Chaldeans were marked by putting their own desires ahead of other people's. They manipulated others to fulfill their own desires. So the faithless person is marked by using others to get what they want, using others to fulfill their own wicked desires. So we have to think for ourselves do you use others to get what you want? Or do you use what resources you do have to fulfill other people's desires? Do you consider others as more important than yourself? The Chaldeans, they manipulated those around them to fulfill all their sensual desires. They sinned and let others into sin so that they might be satisfied. And like all the other woes, there is this reversal of what is expected. Look at verse 16. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. This phrase, you will have your fill, is all wrapped up in one Hebrew word, which has to do with eating and drinking to satisfaction, referring to what one satisfies himself with. It's also a a perfect verb, which means it's probably not future. Uh, As the ESV translates it, rather, it's, you have satisfied yourself with shame more than glory. In the Hebrew language, there's no past, present, or future, it's just perfect or imperfect, complete or incomplete, and by the context you have to interpret that. But because it's a perfect, it's more likely a statement on what they've already done. They have filled themselves, they have taken their fill of shame and not glory. Such a one has satisfied his sensual desires with shameful things, not glorious things. And what they think will bring them glory in reality brings them shame. And such a person shows their uncircumcision, their lack of faith or lack of being in the covenant. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant. They show their unbelief by their actions. And to such a one the cup of God's wrath in his strong hand, the right hand will come around to you. Coming around is a word that refers to going on circuit. It's just the idea, God's wrath, it's eventually coming around to you. Just because it's not here right now doesn't mean it's not coming. It's on circuit. It's going to go around, and it's going to have a time of judgment and a time of reprieve, and he says, "It is coming." Woe to you who use other people to fulfill your sinful desires. And such an action reveals your true uncircumcision, your faithlessness. And when God's cup of judgment comes, it will overwhelm you, it will cover you, there will be complete terror upon you. And so we have to consider, as we're looking at our lives, does this characterize us? Are we characterized by using other people to fulfill our sinful desires? And that brings us to a sixth point. The fifth woe, the polytheism of the faithless. And if that bothers you because it doesn't end in ing, I made up a word to make myself feel better, But they all match, the polytheizing of the faithless. But if you want to stick with real words, polytheism is fine. Look at verses 18 to 20. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. There are three terms in there that refer to idolatry. And they, they encompass a whole range of physical images. Maker includes images formed out of clay and fired. The verb shaped it refers to any idol shaped out of stone, cut out of stone or wood. And metal images includes all cast Idols out of metal. It basically implicates any kind of idol and asks, "What do they benefit?" And that's a rhetorical question that obviously has the answer of nothing. There is no benefit or profit other than the material it's made out of. To the believing mind, obviously, idols are worthless. They do nothing. But to the pagan mind, it is the God that they have created after their own image. And this image is working in the spiritual world to bring about their desires. Now, some of you might be secretly at home making idols, but I doubt it. Although our nation is turning back to paganism, worshiping statues in their homes, But the principle from this is a little bit more obvious because it's stated, Woe to those who place their trust in any created thing. If you put your trust in any created thing, woe to you for you will be sorely disappointed. Speechless idols there, it's a derogatory term that speaks of idols as nothing. They're speechless and dumb. And In the Hebrew, it sounds very similar to the word for God. The word idol here is Elilim, and the word for God is Elohim. And it's derogatory to mock the trust that people put in these things as if they were God. Woe to the one who trusts in a created thing, thinking it is anything like God. In contrast, Yahweh is in his holy temple, In verse 20, there is no verb at all, which is used to indicate just the timeless state of existence. It just is this way. Yahweh is in his holy temple. And that phrase, let keep silence, it's a short particle, just a two-letter word in the Hebrew, and it means hush, It's a word that was used to order sacred silence in the presence of God out of honor. Whereas idols are dumb and speechless and lifeless, Yahweh lives in His holy temple and all hush before Him. It's a stark contrast between Yahweh and dumb idols. The principle is don't put your trust in dumb idols or in any other created thing. Not yourself, not anyone else. Put your trust in the living God who sits on the throne of heaven as the king of the universe. And So we have to ask ourselves, do we trust God or do we trust in our own ability? Do we trust in our own intelligence? Do we trust in our own parenting to save our kids? Do we trust in other things besides the Lord? Whatever that thing is that we put our trust in is an idol that we fashioned in our hearts. Do you trust in your ability to provide for your family? Are you trusting God or something else? And a good indicator, because it's hard just to think, well, am I trusting God? A good indicator of whether you trust God or not is how much you pray We express our trust in God when we take things to him in prayer. There's a reason Jesus taught us to pray in in the Lord's Prayer as he taught the disciples to pray even for daily provisions because in so we are expressing our trust of God to even provide those daily provisions. Praying for daily provisions that we, as Americans, we know they're coming, at least right now. I mean, our pantries are full of food. We know there's going to be food there tomorrow. But praying for daily provision is an expression of our trust in God for those things. How much do you trust in God with the matters of your life? Characteristic of the faithless is to put trust in anything but God. But the faithful, we trust in the living God who sits enthroned in the heavens above. So as we conclude, we have to reflect and think about how we reflect the Chaldeans more than we reflect being a Christian. Woe to those who heap up what is not theirs and loads themselves up with debt. Woe to those who live as if the ends justify the means Woe to those who live for the present and do not think about long-term consequences. Woe to those who use other people to fulfill their sinful pleasures. And woe to those who put their trust in anything but God. We need to examine our own life and see if these things characterize us. And if they characterize us, much like the Beatitudes were meant to give people assurance of their salvation, if these things characterize you, You need to consider whether you are a Christian. If we look a lot like the Chaldeans, there's a good chance we might fall under the same judgment of God. So if you find yourself in your heart of hearts, painted here today in the picture of the Chaldeans, you need to consider your salvation. Maybe you're sitting here today and you know you're not saved. This paints you. You have not put your trust in The God of heaven and his son's sacrifice on the cross. These words are meant to turn you back. Don't follow in the same footsteps of the Babylonians. They, like the Judeans, wiped. Jerusalem was wiped clean. The Jews were hauled off. And then later, the Babylonians were absolutely destroyed. These are an extended illustration to get you to wake up from your wicked ways. Don't continue to walk in them. Your end is the same as Babylon's. But for all of us as Christians, we need to recognize how we resemble the Chaldeans, even in the smallest of ways, and repent. I mean, we all struggle to trust God perfectly. In some way, we struggle with that. We can all seek God more faithfully to trust Him with every step we take throughout the day. We need to seek God, trusting Him for all things. That's what the faithful do. That's what it means to walk by faith, to live by faith. For those who are faithful, we have the promise of life, just like the Old Testament saints did we talked about last week. We trust the Lord has dealt with our sins on the cross and that we will not receive judgment from God as described by the Chaldeans here. We have great hope, but it's not because of anything we have done. It's simply because we have received forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And that's what we have the opportunity to reflect on and celebrate this morning in communion. So let me pray, and Bill's going to come up and lead us. Uh, in our remembrance of Christ's death on the cross and his payment for our sins. Heavenly Father, we, at least I know for myself, uh, your word has pierced my heart how I do not trust you as I should and pray for all those here who may have found themselves painted in these woes that you would give them the gift of sanctification. That they would search the scriptures for their particular issues and learn how to mortify their sin and put off their sin and what to put on in its place. And pray that you would give us great assurance if we are your children that though this does not characterize us, we still stumble and fall. Give us the assurance that our sins have been paid for by your Son with his blood on the cross. And that you are now satisfied with us because of what Christ has done. And help us to reflect on that this morning as we take communion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.